Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, but today... We are here for Gilbert Hernandez. Gilbert Hernandez. <laughs> Sorry, Gilbert, about that. It was just a delayed reaction. Gilbert Hernandez was born in 1957 in Oxnard, California. Yeah, Oxnard. Yeah, Oxnard. In 1981, he co-self-published the first issue of Love and Rockets with his older brother, Mario, and younger brother, Jaime. Yes, let's applaud. <laughs> Jaime is here. Where, where are you? Right over there to the side. And he'll be signing books of it all, too. So just so you know, just let you know. Um, embracing strong female lead characters and punk rock culture, this series stood out from the male-dominated comics landscape of the late 1970s and early 1980s. The following year, Love and Rockets was picked up and republished and continued as a series by Fantagraphics Fant Books. Gilbert Hernandez and his brother Jaime have continued Love and Rockets for three decades. Raise your hand if you're younger than 30 years old. Okay, older than you, okay? Older than you. Okay, just so you know. <laughs> In the... Um, Let's see, in the ensuing years, Hernandez has been nominated for and won nearly every industry award as well as the prestigious United States Artist Literature Fellowship. Hernandez currently lives in Las Vegas, Nevada, with his wife, Carol, and his daughter, Natalia. But we have him here tonight. Please welcome Gilbert Hernandez. Howdy, folks. Let's see if this thing's on. Hello. I'll figure it out. Hello. Well, we'll get to that. So, it all begins in the 1940s, where uh, Mom read comic books. Uh, she, she happened upon a Captain Marvel comic book when she was a kid, and uh, 
she started. Uh, she just happened to like the way it looked. She hadn't really seen a comic book before, and uh, so she started seeking them out. In those days, they were ten cents, so it was okay to buy comic books, you know, for a little kid. Uh, even with inflation, that's still a lot cheaper than they are now. Um, but uh, she she collected them and she. She thought they were really cool, and her mom. He, she had to hide them from her mom because she thought they were trash and they were just cluttering up the house. So she decided to, um, you know, you know, to keep them a secret. She would swap them with friends and things like that. Um, and then, and then she grew up and uh, got married, and then uh, she had older brother Mario. This was in the fifties. And in order to keep him quiet, because he was running around the house too much, uh, she would give him comic books. And 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 so. Then I came along, then Richard, then Jaime, he smiled, Lucinda, and it, what kept us quiet was either reading comic books or drawing them. So I was born into a, ho a house uh, of comics, never knowing that it was, we didn't think it was weird, <laughs> you know, we, we didn't think we were the weirdos in the, in the neighborhood. Uh, it was just normal, and we, we began to, you know, learn to draw from them. It, somehow the, the, the medium uh, took for us. So I just wanted to uh, present some of the comic books I read, if I can get this thing working. Um, uh, oh yeah, this is where I get the, I th believe it is. Ah, uh, I see. Oh, it's like that. There you go. There you go. Okay. Uh, it, these things, you know, I don't know. Only little kids can work them. Um, and I just wanted to go through the, uh, the the most the comic books that influenced me the most to be uh, inspired to do comic books for 30 years instead of getting a real job. Um, the, the cover the, that's Marvel season. That's my newest book, and it's actually a lot of the comic books mentioned in the in that book uh, are real, and they're I'm going to show a couple of them tonight. Um, I wanted to do a graphic novel just about what it was like to be 10 years old. And, uh, and I wanted it to be a story where everybody could relate to it. Even if the time, uh, the, the place and time is a generic mid-60s, I wanted it to be uh, something that anybody c can understand. It's, it's for all ages. Uh, but I wanted to go through the specific, uh, you know, comics that uh, really inspired me to do comics and why I'm still doing them today. Now the cover, uh, you'll see the kid with the dark hair. Originally, uh, he, in, the, in the story, he has a mustache. But uh, if I had put the mustache on him on the cover, uh, he would look like an adult. But he was just, he was just representing those kind of uh, uh, kids that moved in, uh, you know, ca came to your classroom in the middle of the year, and you didn't get why he had a mustache. <laughs> he's, he's 11, you know, and... Uh, so anyway, I, I, that, that's my homage to those kids that you never knew where they're from. I never knew where they went after. They were only there for maybe, you know, three months uh, you know, out of the year, and then they were gone. So here we go. All right. Um, the ghost stories. That, that's the first scary comic I ever saw. Uh, this is about came out, I guess, in 1962. It has a beautiful cover. It looks like a block print. But I was so scared of it, I didn't want to look in the inside, you know, because it's just too, like, there's no way. I'm not going to go in there. <laughs> but once I, you know, got older, but like a lot of things that scare you at first, you tend to keep thinking about it, wondering, like, well, what is in there? And what? And my older brother, Mario, said, oh, it's just a scary book. It's pretty cool. All right, open it up. So here's the first story about this giant snake hand. <laughs> Okay, what I, I put this up because the last panel is just so magnificently <laughs> creepy. Uh, it's it's it, and the story's even beyond creepy. It, it's this is this is after like the, the 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 comic books of the 50s that were banned because they're too violent, but somehow they snuck this one out in the 60s. 
It's basically a story about uh, in in this 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 creepy neighborhood where uh, small children are being kidnapped are, are missing, and uh, now and again somebody would find a little balled up wad of clothing it was all bloody, and nobody knew why, and those turned out to be the missing kids. This is before DNA, so basically. Um, this guy at the bottom, he's a little kid at the beginning of the story, and he, can't, he wants to figure out the secret of what happened to his sister. So this turns out that there's this creepy alien hand or whatever that's, that's been living you know, in the sewers, and it comes out and looks for children. It's got pores that absorb human life, so it just crushes the children into a ball, and that's why he's crushing the trash can looking for a kid. Anyway, well, I'm, getting, I'm getting to the good part. Um, <laughs> No, but anyway, what happens is right before the hand gets him, the cops blow up. The, the, you know, all of a sudden there's explosions and the, the, the snake arm blows up. And the kid goes, "Whoa! How'd you guys know I was here?" He goes, "Oh, we've been here the whole time. We just wanted you as bait." You know. <laughs> <laughs> and even as a kid, I thought, "That's the sickest. What the hell?" <laughs> well, it turns out that the story is written by John Stanley. Now, John Stanley is most noted for writing Little Lulu comics, some of the best written comic books ever. You know, and mainstream comics. So sometimes he would take side projects and write something like that. And this is, you know, a tribute to his talent. He could write some of the best kid stories ever. And then, then when I guess when he felt sick, he just <laughs> write a, write a few of these. He didn't do a lot of these, but this is one of the early ones. I'm I'm just getting toward now. This this just sort of got me going with like, well, there's an interesting. View point of view from certain comics. Uh, the writing has a lot to do with it. Besides this, this great creepy art. Now, um, of, of the three main influences I want to talk about, uh, Jack Kirby's one of them. This cover is only here because of the two pages that come after that, that were in the issue. But I wanted to make note of Jack Kirby's monsters. Now. He, he's, he's, he's a Marvel artist that basically he's the reason why the Avengers is any good, the movie. Um, they're all his ideas and basically um, he used to draw monsters with wings and horns and you know they're flaming through the skies and such. But when he got older his monsters just became lumps. Just big old gooey, silly putty, I don't know. But they're still kind of effective, you know, he kind of looks like the Thing and the Hulk at the same time and then a big piece of poop. But um, Anyway, that, that, I'll just uh, throw that, that in, but uh, Love and Rockets is often talked about the, uh, we, they, they talk about the, the strong women characters. Uh, of what, and here, here's a version of uh, strong women characters that uh, Jack Kirby came up with. Okay, now, there is so much invention in this double page spread that any one of those characters could have their own comic. That's how Kirby's imagination was. He could just come up with this stuff and each individual has their own attitude, their own costume, their own, you know, way they pose, the, you know, their own spitting anger as you can tell. One gal in the middle is just polishing her weapon, doesn't care what's going on, the other ones are getting into a fight. And actually, um, Kirby, uh, during this time, this is after his work for Marvel, after Stan Lee was scripting his work, that he scripted his own stuff, and he was always criticized for the poor dialogue. Like, oh, he's not a, as good dialogue writer as Stan Lee. But if you look back at the old Marvel comics and you read the dialogue by the women, it's pretty lousy. It's uh, the Invisible Girl and Marvel Girl have powers that come from their mind, yet they're always weak. Oh. I feel faint, you know. Oh, what shall we do? Not in Kirby's world. They just came out there whipping ass, and they, 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 they and they were always focused, and they always knew what they were doing. So, and and Kirby doesn't get credit for that. So the dialogue he probably wrote for those characters 
back in the Marvel days was probably a lot better than what Stan Lee came up with. I'm not, I'm saying Stan Lee did a really great job overall, but the details uh, were probably changed because basically the artists like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko would, you know, write the stories and then Stan Lee would fix it up, fix up the dialogue to make it work better. And he did a damn good job at it, but, but I think something was lost sometimes. Um, anyway, but Jack, this is just a great double page spread. And like I said, there's no other cartoonist in mainstream comics that can even come close. All right. <laughs> now we start to getting closer to Jack Kirby's personality, I believe, anyway, allegedly. Uh, this is Jack Kirby inked by Steve Ditko, who is Marvel's other genius in the uh, 60s, who co-created Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Uh, and so what you have is, is, is the panel, and this comic is mentioned, I, I put it up there because it's also mentioned in Marvel season, the actual comic. Uh, I, I, I put this page up because, okay, the Hulk's busting in, he's gonna, you know, he's sick of these aliens that are trying to take over the Earth, and, he's, and they're, they're scared, they go, uh oh, now we're in trouble. Third panel, he's grabbing a guy. The fourth panel, in the middle, is the one that always intrigued me. Look at his expression. He looks like a demented cross between Kirby and Boris Karloff. <laughs> but he looks so nasty, because in the first issue of, of, of The Hulk, he actually kind of handsome. He's gray, and he, looked, he was kind of good looking, and it didn't really work. So by the next issue, they uglied him up, turned him green, and made him more violent. Well, in that middle panel, he's you know blasting the aliens with their own gun. The next panel is just a hilarious comedic explosion with the, the bodies flying around. Then the next panel, last uh, last tear with the first panel, they're begging for their life, and then the Hulk's looking for somebody else to beat up. But I always suspected, even you know, a after a while, that, that that was actually Jack Kirby in the panel, drawing himself, blasting Stan Lee. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, later on, when I, uh, Hyman and I met Jack Kirby, he, he's very passive-aggressive, very pleasant guy, but once he'd get worked up talking about Stan Lee and, and how, what was stolen from him from Marvel, uh, that's what uh, uh, sort of represents that. So, you know, I... I that, that middle panel always tickled me. It's almost a, worth a poster or something. All right. Now we have, now, now we have Ditko by himself, who you know, co-created Spider-Man. Um, Ditko, for me, is the definitive Spider-Man artist because I was there when you know, he was doing it. Most people prefer Romita, John, C, uh, John Romita Sr. and the artist afterwards because they're a little more easy to take because Ditko's art is basically grotesque. But that's what I liked about it. Uh, it just, you know, almost, it didn't belong. It was like a gothic horror art, you know, and this guy doing, you know, superheroes, you know. Um, I pulled out this Spider-Man page because it, it, it has a couple of things in it. Um, the third panel in, in the middle has his Aunt May crying and is very sad up in the attic because she's remember, reminiscing her, her slain husband who was murdered by a burglar who, who had broken in. And Spider-Man's looking and he's bummed out going, oh man, this is, he, he gets really bummed out and he's walking around. Spider-Man af after this was bummed out for 50 years. Uh, but uh, it just turns out that he's thinking about that it was his fault. If you've seen the films and you know uh, the two um, origins of Spider-Man, they kind of they kind of messed up that the, the, the story that the comic had, and then the movies. Basically, Spider-Man gets burned. Like he doesn't get paid from some guys, and so when this crook runs by him, they say stop him. He says nah, because you burned me, right? Later on, the crook happens to kill his uncle, so Spider-Man's full of guilt. Uh, and the, in the recent movie, same thing. He's being treated bad in a liquor store or something like that, and and so when the crook gets away, he doesn't care. 
you know, gets away and kills his uncle. Well, in the original, it's actually a lot more real and sadder because basically when Spider-Man came on the scene, he, um, he was actually performing on television. He wasn't a superhero yet. He got the powers, he got the costume, but he performed on television to make money. And so when he's leaving the studio one day, he's making a lot of money, he's becoming a star. Uh, the scene with the burglar runs by because he's robbing the studio. And they say, stop that guy, stop him. He goes, no, why? I don't need to. I'm a star, I don't need to do that. He, uh, so later on, he comes home, his, his, his uncle's slain and murdered. So that gives him you know, his real angst, his real, the real horror of his life after that. Uh, and so think about it. You know, it's funny. You know, the comic was written in 63, and it, it actually has more weight than the films do, because, I don't know, it's, they're just wusses in Hollywood. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. This is, this is going to continue on the theme of Aunt May being an old lady. And I'll, I'll get to that. Now, here we go with little Archie. Uh, this would be the third guy uh, that uh, I was influenced by the most. First was Kirby. This, this would be this guy. His name is Bob Balling. And basically, he, was, uh, he came to Archie to draw Archie comics, but his style didn't really suit the, the teenage you know, antics of you know, Archie and his gang. It was a little more uh, like Ditko, a little more creepy. So they let him have little Archie. and. Basically, he wrote and drew the stories on his own. They didn't. They left him alone. He he was very very little editing went went, went on, um, except that you know he, he had to keep it clean, keep it a Christian comic, and uh, and he did. He, he came up with some really fabulous issues. Um, interestingly, uh, the page I, I pulled out, if I uh, trace the, the the layout. Of, the, of that page, uh, I don't think anybody would uh, know the difference. Simply, his work is so ingrained in my head that I naturally take from him and lay out my pages the way, uh, you know, tell the story the way he does, just because I love these comics so much, especially this top three panels. Mr. Weatherby looking at the clock, he's thinking about it, calls his wife. Now, <laughs> I want to start talking about his wife in the, the middle tier, second panel, and then the last two panels. See, when I grew up, Old ladies with horn-rimmed glasses ran the world. <laughs> they were mean, but you listened to them. They were the voice of authority. They barked orders at you. You did not mess with them, and you listened to them. I mean, they're gone now. Where are all the old ladies now? They're, they, they dye their hair and jog and, I don't know, watch, <laughs> watch Ghost Hunters? I don't know. It's, uh, it's different now. They, they, the, the, the generation gap, was, it was different. And, but like I said, I guess just because I was a kid and, I was, uh, and the old ladies that I met were, you know, principals, teachers, uh, doctors, uh, you know, whatever, librarians, you know, but you didn't mess with these ladies. So, and I think that this, this Bob Balling's attitude in, the, in this, what he put into, into the story really plays into that. How she's, you know, he's calling her up and, you know, and she, she owns 51% of the bank stock, you know, you can't mess with her. So. Here's some more old ladies. Well, first you got the really lovely cover of uh, Little Archie being visited by the aliens and the mysterious egg. <clears throat> On the top of the, of the page, you have Miss Grundy, who is uh, Archie's teacher, actually introduced in the, 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 the teenage Archie stories, and she's wearing the same dress. She looks exactly the same. But what works for me is that when you're a little kid, adults stay the same. And when you're an adult, kids change. Kids grow from little to big, but you stay the same. So that kind of works for me that uh, later on, Miss Grundy is still Archie's teacher. And, um, and she's actually, this is a kind of a cute scene where she's just telling him, go to the library and find out what pterodactyls eat. So 
I pulled this page out for uh, because um, the two panels in the middle. I can't. Nobody. This is this is Archie Comics. This wasn't in Marvel or DC or anybody else is doing this stuff. The panel where Little Archie is walking to the, into the library is almost mysterious because what Bob Bowling would do, and not a lot of artists would do, is give him a shadow of what showing you what time of day it is. Uh, the bare trees shows you that it's the fall or the early winter. Uh, he would just do it by drawings and just completely leave out all the dialogue or uh, captions and then, you know, little Archie going into the mysterious library. Then you got one of the mean old ladies again. And when I was a kid, I could swear I could see that lady lift her head up as he walks in. And all she has to do is glare at him. And we all knew, they had, it, was, it, was, it was unspoken, we all knew, don't mess around in there. So anyway, that, that, I, just, I just wanted to give it to the old ladies who are no longer around, who used to run, you know, run our lives. Um, and uh, anyway, so with, this is Bob Balling. He's, the, he's, he's uh, of the three guys that influenced me the most in comic books. Okay. Now we start approaching graphic novels. Uh, Classics Illustrated was a, a series of uh, comics that basically took books this thick and squeezed them into 40 pages. But they would take the best parts out, the more, I guess, you know, exciting parts. And this was the first one I ever saw, and the cover, again, scared the hell out of me. Uh, but I th it's one of my favorite covers, because I just love how, you know, it's not going for any hard sell. It's, it's, it's all muted colors, it's brown. And, and I never noticed that you couldn't see the Invisible Man's face or his wrists uh, until my brother Mario pointed him out. He goes, see, this guy's invisible. I didn't know what that meant. I just thought, this is, what the hell am I looking at? Because to me, it looked like a photograph. I was so young, you know, I thought, well, this is what, you know. He goes, well, there's a movie, there's a book, and this and that. But I didn't care. I just loved the cover so much. I remember going to the first Comic-Con and seeing it. I think it was like, you know, on sale for like $60 or something. And like now it's like 60000 or something. But who had $60,000 at 60, you know. Um, here's, here's the two pages from the interior. This, this started to inspire me or impress me about technique in art when I was very young. You have uh, the lady of the inn who's here. People are complaining that there's these weird noises in one of her rooms, but nobody can ever see her, uh, the guy, the, the, the person in the room, come in or out. So she goes to look, and then obviously the invisible man's upset because he throws the blanket at the bottom, and then he throws the hat at her, and he kicks her out by shoving her out with the, the chair. And that last panel is really weird because it almost looks religious the way the light is playing. And he used this. Um, I'm not really sure what kind of technique. It looks like he sprayed ink on there to give it the creepy shadows and stuff. The artist's name is Norman Nodell. And uh, I don't know what, what, what inspired him to do it that way, but what was kind of cool about the artist in those days is that he wasn't paid extra to be artistic. He was just paid to tell the story. But sometimes these guys would get uh, inspired and, and, and want to do stuff like this. Uh, you know, the good artist. Uh, if you look at old... Um, EC comics with Wally Wood art and how much work he put into it. He wasn't paid extra to do that. He wanted to do that. He wanted his stuff to look good. So anyway, the idea of telling a story like a novel uh, was started to percolate in my head. Not that I look. Remember, I'm a little kid. Not that I did anything with it because you know the next day I was reading Jimmy Olsen comics again. But. Okay, I'm going to get in trouble for this one, but now the spaceship in the middle. <laughs> I swear to God, I didn't notice that till uh, I was a teenager. I swear to God. I was like maybe 10, 11 when I first saw this comic. 
but that's not my point. I just want to get that out of the way in case, you know. Um, this was a series of, uh, the Charlton was like the bottom of the, of the barrel of comic books in the 60s. Uh, y you bought Charlton comics because you ran out of comics to buy. <laughs> but but because, because they had that freedom, because they had that freedom, they, were, they could do whatever they wanted to. There was no guidelines like Marvel and DC. So, Okay, so what happened here is this was a, a premiere comic where each issue would uh, have different subject. The first issue had uh, like uh, three stories about different kinds of superheroes. Well, the second issue, I'm not really sure what the original issue was going to be, but um, it just turns out that it fell through. And they literally had two weeks to get it to the printer because it's pre-sold and all that stuff. So they, they, they got uh, Denny O'Neill who still writes comics now, and an artist named uh, Pat Boyette, who's passed on, uh, to knock this thing out in uh, two weeks. Well, since they had to do it so fast, they just knocked it out, and I, I barely an editor saw it. They just knocked it out, and they, they stuck the comics code on there because it was clean, because they looked through the page real quick. But the story is really nuts. It's a, it's a science fiction story about the end of the world, and mutants, and this and that, and they have to turn back the clock to stop the mutant strain from happening. This and that, probably you know knocked off of an Outer Limits episode or something. But to me, when I read it, it was such an epic. It was just an epic told in 24 pages, and it was self-contained. So. As a kid, I thought, well, yeah, you can do whole, whole, whole stories in one book, one, one comic. Um, the books, the story still reads pretty well today, especially considering how fast they did it, and since they didn't have any editorial restrictions, too much anyway, except for the cover. I mean, they, well, that was, I wouldn't say that's a restriction, but. Um, and uh, I, the, the artist has passed since then, so I can't ask him about that spaceship. And I, and, the, and I asked the writer about it, and he doesn't even want to talk about the book. He says, oh, that's the past. Uh, I don't care about that stuff. Do you like my Batman comics? I say, no, I want to talk about this. You know? <laughs> now, Denny's a nice guy, though. Okay, more science fiction. This was probably the first comic book I've ever read. Or ever saw, I'm sorry. I was too small to read. Uh, but I just, it, it was exciting. It was just like on the, on, on, on the counter at home. And I just thought, this is just amazing. What's going on here? A guy has a TV set on his head. Um, it, it's a cute little story. It's actually a guy who gets his home computer. Who's going to believe that? Um, stuck on his head. And he can't tell everybody how to save the world. Another saving the world from atomic you know, stuff. And so he goes around, but the, 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 the electronic brain basically gives him this radioactive power, so whatever he touches explodes. So he can't tell anybody or do any, show anybody how to save the world. And, and, and after a while, the police are just following him, and, this, uh, uh, and, and, everybody, and it's on the news, and everybody's watching, going like, what's he doing? He just keeps blowing up weird stuff. And then his son, who's like around 12, goes, I know what he's doing. Dad, he's t we used to play this game where he would come up with all these photographs and images, and I would have to figure out what the code was. It was a code for some kind of, you know, some sentence or something. And he goes, I know what he's doing. So he wrote down all the things his dad touched, and it just turns out to be a scientific formula, you know. And so the kid figures it out. They, 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 they cure the, the planet, and they cure his, his, his uh, you know, take off the TV off his head, and so I mean, he's fine. But, I, th I, but I, I just thought it was just such a great story, and I didn't read it till later. I was just uh, impressed by the imagery, because I, I guess because of this cover, I really liked 
science fiction from those days where the, it had the heavy contrast of people in casual clothes and then the sci science fiction right next to it, like a TV show like The Outer Limits, you know? He's wearing a suit, but there's a computer on his head. So from then on, I, I've always liked that. So, they, so you'll see a lot of that in my, my kind of uh, stories where I do science fiction. I, I like that contrast. Okay, now we start to get heavy. This was the last issue of Weird Fantasy, I believe, right when the Comics Code came in and uh, the you know, U.S. Senate you know, basically said, stop doing this horrible crap or you know, you're out of business. So they stopped doing these comics. Uh, and, uh, but what impressed me the most, I didn't see EC Comics until till the, uh, the late 60s where I saw a paperback reprinting these stories. Uh, they were black and white, and you, you know, looked at it sideways because they printed the panel sideways. And you know, I thought, wow, these are really cool comics, except there's so many damn words. I still think there's too many damn words in EC Comics. But you know, what the heck, they're, they're, they're well written. Uh, this is a story drawn, I don't know who wrote it, but a, a story drawn by Joe Orlando, uh, who was a DC uh, editor years later. But that last panel, that last panel, just the light bulb in my head just exploded. I just thought, what's going on here? You, you know, I've never seen this before in a comic. I've never seen this before in a movie. I've never seen this before anywhere. That was a real, for real black man that may have, you know, might have lived in my neighborhood, and here he is as a scientist astronaut. And I just thought, wait a minute, where's this been? Where, what, you don't see this in Marvel and DC. You don't see it anywhere else. Uh, I always thought that was just a magnificent panel. He probably took it from a photograph because the shading is just so nice. And uh, um, anyway, that was like the one panel that just knocked me out. Like, think just to put in the back of my head that uh, comics. This could be bigger than what we're seeing in comics. This could be bigger than superheroes and all that stuff. I didn't know what to do with it. Like I said, I went back to Jimmy Olsen right away. But I always remembered that panel, um, and I you know I still do. I still look at it like that's just amazing that they did that. Because before then, uh, in entertainment, basically black men were clowns. This is the first time I ever saw one as a person, and it was in a comic book. So, and they got a lot of shit for doing that, by the way. They trolled them to change the panel and stuff. They refused, and it, there's a whole history behind it. All right. Now we're, we're, we're with probably my number one influence. After, before Cur uh, Kirby, uh, Bob Balling and this guy. There's a guy named uh, Owen Fitzgerald. Basically, he was an animator. They went to comics, uh, and he was drawing um, um, Bob Hope comics and, uh, and Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis comics. Uh, when uh, Dean and Jerry broke up, they became Jerry Lewis comics, but I'm still waiting for that Dean Martin comic. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, and so when the Dennis franchise uh, took off, uh, Hank Ketchum had um, an artist named Al Wiseman start out the Dennis comics, uh, but it's really weird because his style really, I should have had an example here, but his style didn't really suit Dennis. He was more like Dan Klaus or Chris Ware doing a Dennis and Menace. Very technical, very precise lines and this and that. Where, you know, Ketchum himself, his style is, is loose. So he, uh, so to lessen the burden on Al Wiseman doing everything, he, he hired Owen Fitzgerald, who, could, who was such a whiz, he could uh, approximate Ketchum's style. That's interesting. Um, looking at Dennis's mom on the cover there, Jaime and I have used that pose over and over and over without knowing it. The the ex, you know just her expression, the cartoonish expression, um, and and you'll see. Uh, and I, I just doing the slideshow. I, I've done a, a couple of nights now. I, I I've never noticed how much uh, he he's his influences in, in in our drawings. 
So I'll just I'll go through the story real quick. I have the whole story up, but I just want to go through it real quick at, at how good I think this guy is and why he's top of the top of the heap. Uh, first panel, you see Dennis's dad shaving, coming downstairs. He knows it's April Fool's Day. He sneaks up on his wife. April Fool's, ah, ruins breakfast. Now, I want you to look at the, 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 the body language of the mom. Everything she's doing, everything they're doing in the story is just so perfectly uh, rendered uh, that you could, you know, you don't even have to read it to know what's going on because it's just the way she's uh, scolding him. At, you know, hey, look what you did to breakfast. Now you clean it up and I got to start over. Next panel, he's cleaning it up. He's saying, it's April Fool's Day. I want to I fool Dennis. And she's, look at she's making breakfast again. And she's angry at him because he's like, I'm going to fool Dennis. He fools us all the time. I'm going to fool him. She's like, well, don't, you know, don't go too far. So her attitude is like that through the whole story. Uh, uh, Henry, the dad, decide, tells Dennis, hey, you're going to have pancakes. Hey, have it with ketchup. Dennis goes, okay, I'll have the ketchup. At the bottom panel, you see the mom saying, oh, come on, please. Next page, she's glaring at him. The mom is glaring at him because Dennis is just pouring that stuff on there, you know. Next panel, see, she's still glaring at him. She's just like, okay, heh <laughs> heh. Dennis eats it. He loves it, of course. He eats it. Dad, you try it. Oh, oh no, I don't want to. And the mom's laughing. And then uh, because, you know, he doesn't want to be in that big a jerk, he decides to eat it too. And, it's, of course, it's horrible. And then he's trying to think of a new, another way to uh, fool Dennis. Mom turns around, turns on the radio, and he thinks of something. He just thinks of something out of the top of his head. Look, a fine saucer! Henry's like, uh, Dennis is, where, where, where? And then he looks out, yay, a real fine saucer! And they're like, huh? And then you have poor mom cleaning up the mess again. Dennis got excited getting up. Turns out that the, uh, the Air Force was uh, send, sent up an experimental rocket. And, you know, so it blows his joke again. Dennis goes, wow, you figured that out before you, it even said it on the radio. And the mom's saying, oh, he's very smart. He's saying, hmm. So the next page, Dennis is going out going, oh, he's having a great time. And the dad's going, I've got to fool him. I've got to fool him. How am I going to fool him? She's like, come on, leave him alone. So he calls up Mr. Wilson. And Mr. Wilson, of course, wants to get, get back at Dennis. So De and Mr. Wilson, uh, he's digging a flower bed. But he tells Dennis he's uh, digging for treasure. He, f he pulls out a nickel that he planted in there. And Dennis is like, hey, let me try it. So as child abuse stories go, they make him uh, <laughs> dig the flower bed as they watch and gloat. But Dennis finds something. Oh, and it's just a teapot. He's disappointed. Ah, this is no treasure. But Mr. Wilson looks at it. He goes, look, it's, uh, it's, uh, the date is in 1802. It could be a Paul Revere sil silver, Paul Revere pot. And they go, oh, great. And Mr. Wilson goes, hey, this is all my property. This could be worth a lot of money. Hey, April Fool's Day. So Henry's bombed. Like, oh, man. Well, how am I going to get back at this kid? So he goes, uh, so he goes, he goes, I'm going to use the old trick. The old trick of getting the wallet, tying a string to it, and pulling it in front of Dennis, and that'll be my satisfaction. And mom's just not buying it. So, okay, here's the, the last three panels are interesting. Okay, Henry's sneaking out, but look at the panel on the, on the last page, on the, the back, where it's just Henry's butt, and he's crawling under the, uh, the bushes. Now, any place like Marvel and DC or any other comic book company would just tell them, like, well, what's the dialogue? Or what's he doing there? Or are kids going to get it? They'd go through all this crap, but it's just a great panel. You know what's going on. He just looks goofy, just climbing under a bush to fool his son. It's, it's a great panel, no words. Next, uh, next uh, panel, you know, Dennis says, hey, wallet. He's like, ha, ah, finally. Uh, say, and he pulls the string, snap. Dennis gets the wallet, well, you know. And then he shows him, look, it's got money in it. And the mom goes, oh, sure it does. And he goes, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. And then the mom said, mom, Alice says, 
you know, oh, I think he deserves a reward. What? Uh, okay, gives him a reward. The mom just can't hold him in anymore at the first page, last panel. She's just busting up. Again, I just want to emphasize her body language and her, re her reaction to everything, the character's reactions to everything. And then on the top page, on the second page, she's just telling him, Dennis, he's just trying to fool you all day. And Dennis was like, why? And Dennis like, it's because it's April Fool's Day. And Dennis goes, oh, I had the best time. This is a great day. I love this day. And so Dennis's like, okay, all right. What the heck? I lose, but, you know, Dennis is happy. And so at the end, Dennis yells at his, uh, in his ears, April Fool on you. Um, but um, like I, I just wanted to emphasize how important the way he drew, the way he staged the story, um, you know, uh, bringing out the characters like that. Uh, that was he, he was just the final you know light bulb in my head that like oh this is the way I got to do comics this is the, I want to communicate I want to make people I know these are for children you know the the, the Dennis comics and, and little Archie and those but I thought this could this could work for comic books for older readers or anybody you know this could work uh, and, I've, and I've always gone back to him so uh, those are the those are the influences mentioned in Marvel season and the ones the strongest ones I guess. Uh, that influenced me to do comics for 30 years, and uh, here I am. <laughs> All right, any questions? Of, of, of course, there are dozens more, like newspaper strips, like Peanuts and Dick Tracy and stuff. But these are the guys that really, really, that really got me to put you know pen to paper um, anybody have any questions a few questions from the from the throngs no okay will you keep all your awards uh, <laughs> all, all one of them um, <laughs> doorstop you know like the classic story oh I got a couple of awards but they're just gathering dust because I don't know where to put them I just, you know, a couple of plaques here oh man yes Good question. Um, Pat Boyette, right, the artist you mentioned in Premiere, yeah. is that the same Pat Boyette who directed a Dungeons of Hero? He later directed a bunch of low-budget horror films, or a couple, I should say. I'm glad you brought that up. The artist who did that uh, <clears throat> spaceship, uh, the, the science fiction story, um, Children of Doom, uh, yes, actually he was a, a director, screenwriter, and he did make a horror movie called Dungeon of Hero. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I've seen it. It's pretty good. Now, the, the crazy villain and it looks like Dennis Rodman but you know this is you know in the 60s why, why not you know but um, it's it's an interesting movie and uh, yeah I didn't even know he was a filmmaker uh, screenwriter until uh, you know well after he passed but that's a good thing to bring up boy uh, from every well you know when you're a kid it's mostly monster movies of course you know and uh, luckily the first monster movies I saw were the the universal horror movies so I understood the, the what I mean I, I'm I'm not an artist who knows how to shade you know use dark and light but that's what their their movies were about darkness and lightness and they're not in this they weren't necessarily like scary movies and except for small children they just had a cool look to them and a cool tone to them and that was something I definitely uh, picked up on when I was a, a kid I mean there's a lot of movies I like a uh, god I like them from B movies to Z movies to you know a pictures you know, um, I don't know. my mind's going blank <laughs> Another question? Yes. Uh, how has living in Las Vegas kind of influenced you? I don't know how long you've been living there for. I've been living there for 11 years. Um, 
because uh, when we're, 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 we're living here, my daughter was born, and we're looking for a house. Cause we're living in a small place, and we thought a house would be nicer. And they were, the, the landlord was selling the house. So, um, we'd heard good things about Vegas as far as buying a house with a yard, the whole bit. Um, but we looked around here for a while, <laughs> looking for a house in L.A. Yeah, that crack house looks pretty good. Hey, those guys mad-dogging us with the Uzis, you know, they might be nice guys. You know, we just gave up on that and we, we, we looked around and so we, we moved to Vegas. And, I, and I'm happy for myself, personally, I like it because it's the slower pace and I'm, I'm doing more work than I ever have because I'm not distracted, you know, so much. Um, or maybe I'm just getting old, but uh, I, I like it. It's okay. You know, I, it would be nice to move back here, but you must fix that traffic problem. <laughs> it t my flight uh, here was uh, 44 minutes, and it took us almost two hours to drive from LAX to here. So there you go. Um, back there. She. Um, well, the main reason is they never want to pay us. <laughs> Everything must be on spec, you know. Uh, we've written, Hyman and I have written uh, Love and Rocket scripts before, but nobody wanted to pay us for it. They just kept telling us what, wrong, what was wrong with it. They didn't want it. So we just gave up on them, you know. It's a business. You got to treat, you know, you got to treat people, you know, if they're going to work for you, you got to pay them. You know, it's simple as that. I mean, I hate to, you know, keep it on that idiotic level, but it's true. Uh, they want everything for free. And they want to take credit for it if it does get made, you know. Uh, and okay, meet me halfway, you know. So, you know, let's let's work together that way. I'm just not going to give you any ideas or do anything for you unless I'm talking about Hollywood. I, I I've worked differently with comics publishers, but you know, we've talked to Warner, Time Warner. We've talked to guys with camcorders. We've got talked to everybody all in the middle. It just doesn't because because it's not something I want to change. That's always the problem as well. Uh, well, this Palomar thing, does it have to be a small village? Okay. <laughs> uh, this Luba character, does she have to look like that? You know, it's like, well, what do you want? So, any, they want anything because they have no ideas, so, of their own. Uh, yes, here. Um, they. When you first published your, your first Love and Rockets, at the time, I guess I was really young, and so I didn't really understand comics and distribution and stuff like that. So, was it how difficult was it, or could you tell us a, a little bit of the things that you had to overcome? Because at that time, I was thinking, you know, there was only Marvel and DC mm -hmm. and the biggies. I didn't really know what an independent comic was, and were there many of them out there at that point? Uh, not when we started. The ones uh, we. The examples we had of successful ones were, were early on uh, were, would be the underground comics, but they they because it was actually sold very well compared to uh, considering they were you know adults only and they were you know in black and white you know going against the Marvel comics, but they did really well because of the hippie culture. But they they start tended to fade out because whatever the the interest in them started to wane. Even though there's still good artists doing them, like oh, Robert Crumb, you know. Um, Gilbert Sheldon, S. Clay Wilson, but it kind of faded. And also, they were all like hard drinking, drug doing, you know, hippies. So they didn't last very long doing comics. Um, but the interest in black and white independent comics was always around. It just wasn't a, a big deal because Harvey Pekar started American Splendor, I think, in 1976, and that was just unheard of. He just wanted to do it because. Uh, they figured it was just, he was at the tail end of Undergrounds, but he was actually the beginning of something new. Um, two books uh, before Love and Rockets uh, that, that stood on their own, as was, <laughs> of all things, it was uh, Cerebus and Elfquest. But, but the thing is, 
I didn't know that they had a built-in audience. I didn't know there was an audience for fairy stories and elves and things like that. You know, that's why ElfQuest took off. And then uh, Cerebus was uh, pretty much a, a Conan lift, but using a funny animal, you know, a satire. So those had built-in audiences. We didn't have a built-in audience. So luckily, uh, the timing was such that when we felt like doing our comic, um, Jaime did um, his Maggie and Hopi series right away, and it was about punk girls, which it just... Uh, grabbed the audience Im immediately. Luckily, you know, uh, it's, it's it's great that he did that the first thing because that that's what grabbed people right away. And the fact that he drew so well too, you know, that that's the thing about comics. Uh, it's still like that. There's always talk about concepts and, and and the scripts and the writing and stuff, but really the browser looks at the art. If you look at something that looks crappy, you're not going to go back to it, you know. So luckily, with Hyman's really great good art, people s stuck to it. They they looked at it, go, well, I want to see more of this. Hey, this is really good, you know. And then the stuff with the the punk girl seeped in, and so I started Palomar. Uh, just because there was the other half of the book to fill in, and I didn't have it was already selling with and getting noticed with Jaime's work, so I just I knew that I could do something that I could take a chance on, because maybe I, I wouldn't have done that right away. Uh, so after doing a couple of issues of Love and Rockets, warming up, doing really long stories, I got to Palomar, and that was it was it was it was the timing was right. So. Hmm? Inspiration for like those first couple of Palomar stories, human diaphragm, like. <laughs> But in my estimation, those things were almost, I mean, those approaches literature, actually, the writing of those pieces. Seriously, I'm um But what were your inspirations for those? I mean, were these stories kicking around in your head for years and years? Um, they, they were actually kicking around for years. They're, they're a mixture of so many different things. Uh, those three artists I talked about, for one thing, as far as drawing, the actual drawing of it was inspired by those artists. Uh, I grew up in a small, uh, small neighborhood where there was the, like, you'll, if you, when you see Marvel season, it's just sort of a microcosm of your world. And, uh, and I guess what they talk about magic realism now was basically normal life when you're a kid. Uh, you know, there's there's a house down the street that you don't go to because there's ghosts there or something. But it was it was part of your life. It wasn't like a magical thing or strange. It was more like okay, you just don't go there, and there's ghosts there, and you just sort of lived with it. And that's that's what magic realism is. Is it that stuff you know you live with, you know, right next to reality, but you don't question it. And I've always liked that. Uh, growing up, hearing stories about you know weird ghost stories or weird you know mysteries or whatever, and they're always threw in somebody real like oh your uncle did this and he was walking down the street and he saw, you know that, that stuff. I've always thought that there should be a place for those stories, and I really wanted to be original at the beginning, uh, right away. I, I didn't want to do what everybody else is doing only because I don't know how. I only know how to do what what's in my own you know <laughs> imagination. So I just started. Uh, just putting that stuff together little by little, and watching films, of course. Watch you watch a good film, a widescreen uh, John Ford film, and that's how you you, you see uh, landscapes and you see the, the spread. Uh, you'll see uh, you know a, a big scene where there's a mountain in the corner and a little tiny house there. You start to see that as as that that can work. Whereas a lot of artists like to put in a lot of detail and clutter everything to to show how good they draw. But I was more into showing vistas and and the expanse of when you see the world as a kid. It's it's very large and the sky is very big and uh, that, that's what I put in a marble series. You'll notice there's rarely any close-ups of buildings and such. They're all in the distance because that's how they looked like to me when I was growing up. But in Palomar, it was just, God, a lot of stuff. I just felt like drawing 
those the things that came from 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 you know growing up and 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 putting that in stories that might be interesting. I mean, you know, I wanted to do melodramatic you know, stories. It's called they call it soap operas, but I, I call it melodrama or you know fiction. Um, it was uh, God, it's a combination of so many things. It just all came together, and uh, I was just it was just the timing was good for me because I was ready to do it. You know, I didn't second guess it, didn't look back. I didn't know it was going to work. I'm happy it did. But, you know, really, we always looked at Love and Rockets looking forward, never looking back. Like, this could go wrong, or, you know, what's going to happen to us? No, we just went forward, because we had no other way to express ourselves the way, you know, the comics did. Guy back there. Based off of what you said about having conversations with Jack Kirby, would you say that a lot of those negative rumors about Stanley, and I know there's a lot out there, are somewhat true? I'm not well. There's a lot of them, so I couldn't really pinpoint any of them. No, I just I, I suppose Kirby was just angry that and, and Ditko. This is why he left as well. It's just that uh, they were a team and they're they were working together and somehow they were creating these characters were obviously going somewhere and there was a big promise that everybody would share in the wealth equally. Well, that never happens with artists. They, there's always somebody on top, and everybody, and then the artists are like saying, "Hey, where's my money? Oh, you'll get it. You'll get it." And there's a story. I'm not sure if it's true that when uh, Steve Ditko, you know, got got sick of that, he goes, "Wait a minute! I created co-created co Spider-Man with you and uh, Doctor Strange. Where's where's my part of the money? Stanley's doing great." He goes, "Oh, you'll get it. Don't worry, you'll get it." So he went to Jack Kirby. I'm like I said, I'm not sure this is a true story, but I've heard it for several people. He goes, "He went to Jack Kirby. He says, come on, let's just as a team, let's just fight this.'" Let's fight this. Kirby was raising a family. You know, Ditko's single, and uh, I think, and uh, Kirby was raising a family, and he thought about it. He goes, no, I, I got to stick around. I, this is how I make a living, and this and that. So Ditko left, and then later, Kirby, a couple of years later, three years later. So uh, I don't, I guess the, the, I guess it was just a whole uh, uh, hostility about Stanley taking credit for everything. I mean, you watch that crappy-ass show, Comic Book Men, and all Kevin Smith talks about how fucking Stanley invented everything. It's like, you're full of shit, man. <laughs> he wrote dialogue. That's not creating the characters. That's not laying out the pages and drawing them. Stanley was a great editor and, and, and a great scripter. He was. He was. That's why Marvel was, you know, a little higher than... Because, I mean, if you look at Jack Kirby and Ditko stuff without Stanley, it's not quite as good. It might, it's more, you know, it might be as inventive and creative. Anyway, I guess the hostility was just that Stanley took cre credit for everything. Because as soon as Jack Kirby left, did you notice that's when it said Stanley presents. Uh, Stanley presents Captain America. Well, they fixed that. He had nothing to do with Captain America. You see that in the movies now, finally, you know. But anyway, blah, blah, blah. blah. That's just me uh, grousing. Hi. I'm a big fan, and I especially love your um, complex female characters. They're really tough. The plot Um, you know, that's hard for me to say now. I tell. It's hard to tell because it was... Uh, now, because we've been around so long, the age group is so varied, you know, because first it was, you know, young people mostly. Uh, and now it's varied. Uh, and the attraction, I think, originally, again, was the, the Maggie and Hopi stories because the young female readers saw themselves directly in the stories. Uh, you know, whereas I would be... Uh, my stories were a little more distant, but they were still 
you know, interested in the female characters. So that's for for so so what I'm I don't know what you know how how that works. I don't know how you know. I'm just happy it does. <laughs> uh, the guy back there first. Um, how big are your like original drawings, or, or have they always been like the same size when you first started? Um, they were uh, about 11 by 17 originally, because it was the magazine we were doing, uh, and then uh, we did the comic book size, so I started shrinking it. And now a lot of my uh, my pages, I don't even know what's they're probably as big as this laptop here thing. You know, it's just like they're this small because I drew it pretty close to the uh, printed size. Uh, not for simply because I I just like it better. I just like the way you know my. I, I get the line better and the way the, the pencils work. I, it's pretty small, actually. Most people don't draw that small. They usually draw fairly large. Whenever uh, uh, my stuff's up in a gallery show with other people, the, the other artists go like, God, you draw small? Why? And I go, well, it's just, it's, it, my art's made for uh, reproduction. It's not for galleries, you know. Uh, other people's, like Chris Ware's stuff is made for galleries. If you, uh, if you, um, if you go see a Chris Ware show at a gallery, it's amazing. It's just gigantic diagrams and all the stuff that he comes up with. But his comics don't interest me that much. Just, just, they just don't. I mean, I know Chris. He's, he's a cool guy. I'm just not all that wild about that technical stuff in comics. I like the more, you know, homey stuff. Uh, one more question, Mr. Hatfield. Girls and boys in Marvel season. I love the way that. You wrote the girls and the boys both separately and together. And it seemed like there were certain things that the girls were getting in Marvel season that, like, Huey wasn't. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of, uh, and I'm wondering to what extent those child characters are based on memory, what extent their observation. Did, did those characters come to you as drawings? Did they come to you as personalities? Like, okay, like, like this, like, uh, let's say, Lana or Chava, or do they start as drawing in your head or do they start with people? This uh, Marvel season was a little different uh, than because I already knew since I'd been those experiences uh, experiences have been in my head since they happened <laughs> for you know uh, you know forty years you know um, or so I they just I I don't remember how old I am I just uh, but I I don't know I, it was just writing that was one of the easiest things I've ever written because I just said oh yeah this happened and then this happened. And I guess maybe this person felt this way, because I would make up people to, to also to fit the, because uh, uh, there wasn't that many girls around when, the, when those things when those things happened. Not a lot. Uh, I had I put them in the story because I did want that contrast. I wanted a different type of thinking going on, because I was so involved. I mean, obviously you see what Huey goes through in the story. I mean, that was pretty much what I was like. I was just oblivious to everybody else's ideas and thoughts. And uh, when I would try to do something and, and I would get this negative response, I was more like confused, like, don't you understand what I'm doing? Y yet I would step back and go, oh, they're right. This is really stupid, you know? But I would just get too involved in what I was doing. I was pretty, uh, you know, I guess my imagination has always worked overtime, and I finally put it to work doing comics, you know. But um, it's, it's really hard to describe where things come from, why I did them with certain characters. They just, it's almost like I do them in my sleep. You know, I don't, it's, it's a, a phantom person in my head that uh, does that for me, and I just, the guy who draws it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to explain it. I, it's, uh, my brain just works that way. Uh, it can get it can get the best of you though. If you don't corral it, if you don't put you know it's like proper editing in this story, it can just go on forever. Um, the whole story is just about 
what it's like to be 10 years old from, you know, and that's it. That, that, that another world, that world where you're just 10 years old, no beginning, no end. Whereas I know getting toward the end of the story, I, I felt like I better give him something, a little something to, to wrap this up, to bring this all around. And when you read the book, you'll see it. But uh, anyway, that's, that's it. I, I, I can't, those are the hardest questions, you know. <laughs> no, only because I've been doing it for 30 years and I still don't know how I do it or why. And you know, I just... Well, thanks a lot. I, I can't. That's a, it for the questions. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.